Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A warning from the bond market. Ten-year yields crossing the key 4.5% mark today for the first time since 2007. But it's a relationship with shorter-term treasuries that has one of our traders sending up red flags while he says the yield curve is flashing big warning signs. Plus, crude realities. Oil prices up nearly 30% this quarter. And one top exec says the rally's only just begun. What it means for your investment and how you should play the move. And later, an under-the-radar winner in the weight loss drug craze. We'll talk to the CEO of a manufacturing company with close ties to both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. Jacob Solutions' Bob Pragada is on set tonight to detail how the company is benefiting from the boom in demand. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and our guest trader tonight, Chris Verone of Strategus, a Baird company. And we start off with that steepening of the yield curve. The 10 years rapid rise to 4.5% and beyond has come much faster at a much faster pace than the two years climb over the past few months. And that's narrowed the spread between the two treasuries sharply. Since hitting a four-decade-plus low earlier the year, the gap has come in by nearly 50 basis points since July. Someone here tonight says that could set up for a very rough period in the equities. Chris is that person. What do you see? You know, what's funny about this business is people get all worked up about an inverted curve, but it's really not the inverted curve that gets you in trouble. It's when the curve begins to come out of inversion, when the curve actually starts to steepen. And I think the big story of the last three, four months is the steepening of twos and tens. Now, it's steepened in an odd way. This has been a bear steepener. So 10-year yields have backed up. Even if twos have kind of hovered around five. It's a little unusual. You've only saw that twice historically, 1969-1970 and 1973-74. It was the signal you were approaching the tough part of the business cycle. And I think what's interesting, when you look at these steepeners historically, that move going from inverted back to positive has typically been the worst part of the equity cycle. So I just want to be mindful of what the signal here is. It tends to be a risk-off signal, particularly for leadership. And I think the big story the last four, five, six weeks is how you've seen cyclicality really start to falter and defensive showing some life. So when you say the worst part, like how bad was that period in the equity markets for those two periods of time? Yeah, I mean, that was the lead up to the recession in 69 and then 73, 74. So you're at the point where markets actually tend to be topping. The best part of the curve is actually when it's very, very steep and flattening. So there's misconceptions about the curve. It's when it's steepening from an inverted position, trouble has typically followed. And there's an, there's, there's an argument that this kind of bear steepening, which is the long end getting higher, is, is, is somewhat bullish because the economy's not falling out of bed and you're not seeing at least the market start to price in the, the short end of the curve. Um, the part about this that just is different and feels different is that some of this steepening is all coming from supply. It's all coming from some dysfunction around uh, our government, possibly, um, but certainly around refunding, certainly around the dynamic of, of where I think the, the, the global interest rate pattern is going higher. And look at the dollar, by the way, the dollar, which today uh, went up to that, kissed that 106 level on the, on the Dixie. Uh, you're basically, I think, breaking out through that March resistance. And I, you, you probably will test that. I, as someone that thought that the dollar was going to go lower, and I'm not alone, I think it's a crowded trade um, of, of people that have been, frankly, wrong about this dollar weakening. I think it's a very crowded trade that probably uh, still will see people holding in there, but the dollar is painful for markets here, and I think that's going toe-in-toe with the Treasury market. The warning signs are there. I mean, Chris is right. The reason why people get um, exercised about an inverted yield curve is because you know at some point it's going to re-steepen, and to your point, the re-steepening is when things get dicey, and this bear re-steepening, again, not to get too wonky, it's happening in a very dramatic way. I mean, 10-year yields now through 4.5%. This is the highest we've seen in 16 years. The TLT closing below 90 
not a good thing either. And you have to wonder, how long can the market hold in there? The S&P has held last August high, 4330-ish. We've bounced off there a couple times. That's a good sign. The question is for how much longer. Yeah, it's interesting that Chris mentioned what this means for this this stage of the economic cycle. And I'm just like two of my favorite bears on the street, Mike Wilson uh, at Morgan Stanley. He's talking about just consumer and some of the data that they're tracking and what that means. And then Marco Kalanovic over at JP Morgan this morning, also in a note out, you know, just talking about uh, corporate's ability to pass through this same kind of concept, pass through, you know, higher input costs and the like. And you just say to yourself, as, as it relates to the economy, you know, we have businesses that probably hit peak margins and, and, and have, uh, you know, really pass through as much as they can. And a consumer from a credit standpoint, that's just tapped at, at a point where rates have gone up so fast. And if you are like a lower wage earner and wages have, de- you know, at least the pace in which they're going up has decelerated a little bit. I just, you know, I'm, I'm just hard pressed to see all of this together is conducive for equities going much higher in the near term until there's a proper, rece- uh, you know, correction or so. And if you look at that equal weight S&P 500, it was about down 9% or so. I think like, like seeing down 10% would be an interesting alarm bell with the VIX of above 20 or something. We haven't gotten there yet, but it might get there, especially if we have a continuation of this move where the 10-year keeps going higher and we have that re-steepening. So we've always had this conversation about the steepening of the 10-year yield in the context of it makes tech, it makes biotech, all mm-hmm. those sort of, you know, more speculative <laughs> trades, uh, longer duration trades, less attractive. So this is just happening in conjunction with what is going on with what's with the yield steep with the yield curve? Yeah, I think so. And when you look at this last leg higher in yields, what's really been hit are the very marginal parts of the equity market. I mean, ARC is under 40. We've seen I mean, even what was hailed as good IPOs a week ago, Art, um, Arm and uh, Instacart are back on their lows here. So the marginal parts of the market are quite weak. I do think it's interesting, Dan, on the, on the margin point, right, margins under pressure, the things every company needs People, money, and energy have all gone up. The cost of all of those have all gone up. You know, we've done a lot of work looking at energy versus discretionary in this part of the cycle. Energy's dominance over consumer discretionary is a late cycle signal, not an early cycle one. Yeah, and if you look at the XLE, you know, to me, we're, we're possibly breaking out again. This is an area where, if you look at it on the charts, and there's, there's, it's not just about a linearity to the oil price. It really is the kind of guidance we're getting from these companies. I mean, Guy, Guy referenced the you know, Chevron CEO last week, and the dynamics, I think around their balance sheet are things that are going to continue to support that defensiveness. Defensiveness, staples, healthcare, uh, 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 which typically go along with energy here. Um, I, I think they're getting interesting. I don't think it's time just yet. Uh, and again, I look at staples, which have drastically underperformed the S&P uh, over the last six months, 16, 17, 18 percent. And, and back to that pricing power Dan was talking about and what companies can pass through. What they, like, I, I think the best days of that, uh, I think we've seen their best days on a two-year basis for Dis- a long time. Discretionary stocks act horrible. I mean, I'm looking at like Disney and Nike are down 30% from this year's highs, okay? You know, and then you look at a Starbucks down 20%. We've talked about these names. I mean, they're telling you something to both of those things I think we've talked about. A consumer that's a bit tapped at a time where all of those inputs are really weighing on margins. Dan, yeah. well, you know, I think the most, the most vaunted parts of the market all year, discretionary and semis or tech, internally are actually the weakest. Only 40% of discretionary above the 200 mm-hmm. moving average. That's not a bull market reading there. We, we beat up on Target all the time, but it's a pretty decent indicator. Now, a lot of their problems are self-inflicted. 110 and change today. Lowest we've seen in many years in Target. Bounce late still. Not a particularly good day. The outperformance of Walmart vis-a-vis these dollar stores is not good. Massive double top in the SMH. We brought that up. And the XLE, I think we tr- test the levels we saw, I think, in the summer of 2014, 100-ish 
dollars, and I think we break through. Energy still works in this environment. So when is the time to go short? If we're going to hit the hardest part, if we're going to, you know, if the if the, some of the leaders of the markets look weakest, um, when do you go short these? I, I'm going to look so, at Dan because you have been known to short various yeah. areas of the market. Um, some have been pain trades, uh, but now is now the time. Well, I, I think we're losing some of the leadership. I mean, Tesla. Yeah. Did you see the way Tesla closed on Friday? And it was trading pretty weak today. You know, Nvidia is down. You know, 16, 17 percent from those. You know, post earnings highs. And, and, and again, until they make new relative highs, like you know, until they take out the ones, I, I think you can. I think you short the Nasdaq. I mean, like, so I hadn't done that in a while. I did it last week. It, the timing was okay this time. Um, but um, I, you know, I think those are going to be under pressure because I, I think if you look at the S&P 500, which, you know, those top 10 names make up a little more than 25% or so, I mean, they're still hanging in there. Okay. You know I what mean, I mean? They, and, look, they definitely are. And and Microsoft and Apple, you could consider heroic in terms of how they, they overcame that, that elevator trip down. But uh, it, it's about risk reward. And and to me, Apple's 150 before it's 200. Um, and, and that risk reward is a dynamic. Doesn't mean Apple can't do a great job in buying back shares and actually growing earnings just through uh, some of their capital markets dynamics. But um, I don't think that the mega cap tech stocks are going to hurt you here, even in a defensive market. But um, I get back to discretionary. Look, I'm short Nike. I'm short Lulu. I, I think a lot of these names are going to continue to weaken up. Nike's had a big move lower. Um, I think it can, you know, look, this week is very interesting. I'm, I'm contemplating tactically, you know, how good does, does it get in this name? If you think about it, it's about 24 times uh, on a forward. It's come in 20 percent off of that multiple on a forward basis. I think it can go lower. Yeah. What would you short here, Chris? I'm with Dan on this. I think what we've seen is the year-to-date tops for Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA. They are oversold in the short term. I recognize that seasonality improves the next couple weeks. I want to be a seller of those bounces. The 50-day moving averages on all those stocks are now, I think, very important resistance, not just for the remainder of the year, but into first quarter of next year. All I say is, well, regional banks, I don't think they trade. Mega cap banks don't trade well. Bank of America, Citibank, Wells Fargo to a certain extent. But regional banks in the KRE... Not traded particularly well. I think they roll over, especially, look, you look at the Russell, the IWM, we topped out. Seemingly 175, 180 has been a top. Can't get through it. I think regional banks go lower from here. You know, it's interesting. Chris just mentioned seasonality gets a little bit better over the next few weeks. Think about this. When we got back from Labor Day, I think the consensus, like most strategists, most investors, everyone we talked to was that September, you know, normally pretty bad, was going to be bad. And then every once in a while, you get one of those folks who pick their head up and say, well, I'm going the other way. I think it's going to be a rip roaring. It's going to rip your face off. That's the pain trade higher. And look where we are on a month to day basis. I mean, the S&P is down nearly 4%. I mean, so it would take a miracle for it to close up, I think, on this month at this point. So I I think it's, sometimes it's interesting when we focus on being a little bit like going with the flow here. Um, I really do think that, like, you know, I think that the, the highs are in. I think you sell rallies. And I think, Dan, to Guy's point, if we said 11 months and two weeks ago when the S&P bottomed on October 12th of last year, that one year later, Bank of America and Citigroup would be on the lows. I think we'd all be surprised by that. But we're nearly a year off the market bottom and the banks have simply not been involved. What does it mean? Well, it means that the, the, the market does not believe credit dynamics right now. And, and the banks are going to be in the epicenter. We know their balance sheets are fine. We know that you know, some of the dynamic and the, the corporate balance sheets are largely fine. Um, to some extent, we are worried about commercial property. We are worried about where the retail is. We have seen the cracks. Um, but I agree. I mean, the fact that Citibank is through an SVB low here, I mean, that, that's, that's tough. For more on rates, let's bring in New Edge Wealth Head of Fixed Income, Ben Emmons. Ben, great to have you with us. Um, hey, Melissa. It's great to be back. 
Hey, are we going to look back on this level of the 10-year yield and think this is pretty much the highs for this cycle? Well, I think we still have some to go here. You know, like if I was looking at technical levels today, if you take from, say, the 2007 peak to the bottom in 2021 and then back up, if you think of the retracement levels, then we've really broken through all of them. So technically speaking, you should actually make all the way back to the top. Now, there is some, I think, some tactical opportunity here. I was looking at TLT and VGLT. They're quite oversold now on short-term indicators. They've drawn down almost like 13, 14% from the peak in July. So that, that may be your tactical opportunity. But I think we have to reckon that a yield of four and a quarter percent was not really reflective of the economy. Is it may be a yield of five and a quarter percent. And to echoing to Tim and Chris's points, like this is a supply-driven rally, but it's also about liquidity. Right? We have quantitative tightening. So last week, for example, the Bank of England increasing quantitative tightening. So there's also a global story behind rates. So I think we may have a tactical short-term bounce here in VGLT or TLT, but it's really the upside of five and a quarter on the 10-year. I think that we'll have to look at. So, I mean, not to play bond market too much, but uh, <laughs> the opportunity is there for, for yields to go slightly lower. But then that would, in theory, be the point where you would bet that yields would go much higher because you're actually seeing key resistance to four and three quarters. Yeah, I think, uh, so Melissa, I think that this four and a half that was mentioned the other day was just not really holding here. There's too much pressure, you know, just simply by supply. You know, very simplistic today with T-bill auctions, they don't actually never matter to markets, but they were not that well received. And I think that added to the pressure in yields this morning, we're getting a lot more supply this week. So I think it's more about 475 as a, as a key resistance for this short-term technical buy opportunity. But then from there, we have to see how much it pulls back. You know, it depends on data and depends on, on inflation. If, if we don't pull back much, then it's really going to be a, a, a move towards five and a quarter. That does look like it. Hey, Ben, it's Tim. So how, how much of this, if at all, could be related to government shutdown dynamics? I've read your notes. They were fascinating. In fact, they're, it's complex. Um, you say maybe there's a, a short term even you know, funding dynamic for the Treasury because they want to get through a difficult period. They want to have liquidity. T-bill market also uh, look in the short run. Maybe they're trying to overfund in the T-bill market uh, as rates go higher. It becomes a lot more expensive for them to, to finance a deficit that's getting bigger and bigger. And ultimately, they're going to have to lock in some higher rates uh, out the curve. You know, attack this any way you want because it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, for sure, Tim. And I think that, you know, how did this all start at this sell-off in rates? If you go back to July when the Treasury met with this advisory committee, they said, okay, you know, you may go above that threshold of 20% T-bill issuance for a period of time, but then you should consider to move more issuance out the curve because if you issue too much short-term, that deficit becomes very unstable. And, and so I think this is the dynamic plays out today. Yeah, a short-term funding uh, for, for the government to keep open and just finance it with T-bills may not be enough. You have to actually push out issuance out the yield curve, and I think that's troubling the Treasury market currently. So you could expect to see more in the next quarter, the next refunding, to see increased issuance for 10 and 30-year bonds. I think that's being priced in today, as we're seeing right now. That's interesting, but then you also throw in the possible dynamic that a government shutdown could... Uh, lead buyers to buy sort of the safety of treasuries or the U.S. dollar, which is bizarre kind of thinking. But in the past, we have seen that happen. Yeah, it could be. Melissa, like I said, you know, most of these shutdowns have happened are, are short-term effects on the economy, you know, almost like a weather effect, if you will. Um, but it is an uncertainty moment. So it leads then to some 
level of flight, the safety, if you will. And I think if you coincide it with very short-term tactical indicators, technical indicators, and you're getting very oversold on ETFs like TTLT with a, a shutdown overhanging the markets, and that gives you, I guess, scope for this very short-term tactical rally that, that may be in the works. But I think the bigger picture is more about what, what Tim and I were just discussing. You're dealing with a deficit that's substantial, and you, you're issuing it with too much short-term paper. So if you have to get away from that, you've got to go out the yield curve in, in terms of issuance. That will continue, I think, be the pressure point for the Treasury market. Ben, good to see you. Thank you. Thank ben you, yeah, they're doing short-term paper because they're they're clearly concerned, scared, I would say, what would happen if they tried to do a longer duration, without question. So they're just trying to hopefully the bond market settles down and allows them to do something longer term. It's not happening. It's actually working against them, number one. And we talk about this without getting too much in the weeds, but don't discount what's going on in Japan. Dollar-yen approaching 150 is a huge technical level. The Bank of Japan will jawbone. They won't be able to stop it. They've probably been selling treasuries. That's leading to this as well. Yeah, I think JGP yields uh, have used this term. I think they could slingshot higher. Um, I really do. I think there's dynamics also with the BOJ that at some point they're either going to lose more credibility or they're going to have to give in to the dynamics here. A lot of this, by the way, is also relatively good for commodities. Um, what we're seeing here is that you almost have like this PPI, di- uh, PPI dynamic, which is actually good for certain parts of the market. And it's actually not bad overall for the economy. I know it sounds crazy, not easy for the Fed, but we're seeing copper prices hold in. We're seeing iron ore. We're seeing dynamics around China. Um, I think the resource names you continue to own. It's funny. You know, last week we heard from the Fed, and there seems to be a massive disconnect between the voting members of the Fed and the voting public of the United States. If you think about higher for longer, it was really to deal with what they think is an economy that's staying afloat. And then if you look at these ABC polls as it relates to Biden's approval or therefore really disapproval rating, it's massive. And on the economy, it's really bad. And when the voting public is, you know, again, it's a poll. Who knows? But they they are probably telling you how they feel about the economy right now, there seems to be a massive disconnect right now. And that's the thing that, I mean, I I would probably go with the consumer. I'd probably go with the voters, how they're feeling. I think in the very short term on yields, look for classic signs of a blow off volume, for example. We've been doing 40, 50 million shares a day on TLT. I'd say it's something in the blow-off categories, 80 or 90 million. We saw that near the 2020 uh, lows there. So keep that in mind. It sounds silly to say, but what do we know historically? Bond yields go up until they don't, right? They go up until gravity hits them. I just, I, I know we got to go, but I mean, equities trade great on some level. If you consider yeah, the move we've had, I just want to, I want to say this. And I want to say it from the seasonal aspect, and I think it's giving you a great opportunity on the setup here, because we're not going up to five and a quarter on the tenure. And, and I mean, in the short run, in other words, we've had a massive move and I think equities have traded very resilient. Coming up, Apple's next move, the tech giant getting sliced over the last few months and a few of our traders think the pain could continue. Why they are so sour on this name next. And talk about some home improvements. Williams-Sonoma surging as some big money flows into the retailer. So could this be the stock to really tie your portfolio together? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a rough couple of months for Apple since hitting one all-time high after another in June and July. The stock has pulled back more than 10% from its record. It's down more than 6% just in September alone, on pace for its worst month of the year. And a couple of our traders think this chart is getting worse before it gets better. Tim, you flagged this on the call today. Yeah, and I brought it up last block, so at the risk of being repetitive, I I do think that the, the... 
upside to Apple is capped here. It is about risk reward. And I look at the chart and I look at where that 150 level, that may be a little more aggressive. Remember, we traded to 176. It looked like it was going straight to 160. It bounced, uh, bounced off that 50, held the 100, I should say. Um, and I think that price action is impressive. I, I just think that when you consider some of the good news that's behind Apple and that the stock really um, is, is meandering at best, the dynamics around where uh, I think the equal weighted and some of the technical aspects of the ETF world and how people are investing in the market um, I actually think there's a lot more people focusing away from the uh, the mega cap stocks. So that is really my argument. The valuation is something that I, I think is easy to have uh, a difficult time with at this point. And, and it just gets back to not getting away from you. Yeah. You know, Tim, I think when you look at the chart, that 50-day moving average is resistance now. And I think it will be for the remainder of the year. 182, 183 is that level here. If you cut the rally in half that we've had this year, it gets you 160 on the chart. I think a 50% retracement makes some sense there. But remember, when you look at this whole group of stocks, Apple, Google, Meta, Amazon, etc., there's about 350 analysts who cover all of them. There's only four cells on that whole complex of stocks. Isn't a lot of good news already in these things? Yeah, but in the context of a market that's expected to go lower, in the context of a consumer that is going to be weak, I mean, hasn't this stock really held up pretty well? Well, 170, so here we are. The prior all-time high was December of 2021, right around where we are now. So the good news is we're holding that level. The bad news is there's been no meaningful bounce since that China announcement a couple of weeks ago. And if you said it a week or so ago, shadow ban in China, and this stock goes from 176 to 160 in a heartbeat. But here's, a, I mean, so defensive. Would you rather be, ooh. You did it. Would you rather? Um, Apple or healthcare? It's funny. I was going to, would you rather? I was going to really? say, so to mega cap, I was going to say, so Google is expected on a gap basis to grow earnings next year 20% and sales growth of 12%, okay? And Apple's trading 27 times its next year and expected to grow earnings maybe 7 8% and on 6% revenue growth. I'd much rather Google right here, right now. You know what I mean? Like your own rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought that was more relevant. I don't even know what you asked me is the other thing. But but maybe one of the other folks you're listening here, but uh, I already made up my mind. So Google looks more attractive. That being said, at 160, and I've said it here too, and I think Tim even admits that 150 would probably be a pretty big overshoot. It would take a pretty big move to the downside or something very fundamental to the company. Maybe Guy didn't line up and get his USB-C titanium iPhone 15 Pro Max. Maybe that's something that didn't happen this past weekend. I mean, that's sure what they're pushing here, people. A titanium. Dan, I just don't think, USB-C. I don't think we can just choose whatever narrative we want to shape the price action. At one point this year, these stocks were offensive. Now we want to pretend they're defensive. I would pick healthcare over Apple here. Would, I think okay. there's a move. Oh, that was defensive. it? Thank you for answering my question. Sorry. I mean, it's like I didn't even come back from a No, you're back. Welcome back, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. There was a great scene in Pitch Perfect, the first one, where they're singing, I am titanium. In uh, early in the movie, just saying. Great, Tim, great would you scene. rather Google or Apple here? I, I'd rather not listen about Pitch Perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I tell <laughs> you what, don't Google, pretend Google. you don't like that movie, I, Tim. That's is, a great is that movie. Cosner? Who is that? Who's Who? in that? I don't yeah, know who's Cosner's not in Pitch Perfect. Sounds like a baseball movie. Who's the acapella stuff? I don't. It's not about whatever. baseball. I, I got no time for that movie. Um, I've got I've got more time for Google over Apple here. I'm long Google. Healthcare or Apple though? Oh, healthcare. Okay. Healthcare and, and healthcare has been a tough place to be. Uh, and I realize the headwinds. And we've got all the politics ahead of healthcare. We've had a lot of politics over the summer. Healthcare. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Out of the frying pan and into your portfolio. William Sonoma surging as it gets a vote of confidence from one big investor. So make yourself at home. The traders are digging into this one next. 
Plus, the weight loss drug boom isn't just boosting pharma stocks. The manufacturing name that could see some outsized gains, thanks to the population slimming down. That's ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, a solid home improvement project for shares of Williams-Sonoma today. Green equity investors, an arm of investment firm Leonard Green, revealed a 5% stake in the company. The position is passive, according to the filing, but shares of the home goods retailer did hit their highest level in just over a year. Williams-Sonoma, what are they known for, guys? Well, let's not do that. Do we have, I mean, we Well, well what are they known for, Tim? It's uh, maybe potpourri, uh, possibly scented uh, candles. Small um, Dutch ovens. Dutch ovens. Dutch okay, ovens. so. Anyway, so, what do you make of this? We did well, it. We did it. If Carter was here, Chris is here, he would say, you know what, we've actually entered a bearish to bullish reversal on the chart. Going back from its all-time high in November of 2021, it's been a series of lower highs and lower lows. That has changed over the last month and a half, two months. Valuation, reasonable. 11 times next year's numbers. Trades effectively one times revenue. It's a great company with a great story. The question is, can it hold up in this environment on the high end? I think it can. I think the stock can go higher. You know, Guy, I would just add, it's certainly a good chart. It has those characteristics. But we need to be mindful it's the best chart in a bad group. I'd rather own the worst chart in a good group, where if something goes wrong here, you don't get bailed out with the group behind you. So I don't think it can be a full position here, given the group dynamics. Uh, the, the news, as the headline hits, though, is, is obviously very bullish for Williams-Sonoma, because Leonard Green is known to be uh, very smart uh, in the consumer retail space. It's almost a pat on the back, showing the 5% position. It's a decent endorsement, uh, also just because it, it says a lot about the strength of the e-commerce business that they've built. It's says a lot about uh, the strength of the management team. So uh, I like it. I like the multiple. Uh, I think it's probably not a place where PE is making a big move here. Um, Restoration Hardware is another name I just want to throw in there because this is a name that, that you know, I've been trading and so far pretty well. And I hate to sound like real happy here. What I'm saying is that stock's gone from 390 down to th- about to 260. Um, and this is about where I put it on the first place. Uh, I think it is worth looking at. And, and I do think that the news we got out of this earnings cycle was was not terribly good. Chris is right, though. These names, I think, still have some headwinds. I'm not sure you have to do it right now. What are you laughing? I'm not. I'm just. I'm just. You know, I can smirk. No, because I was just thinking about Dutch ovens and how much. You were thinking about how well he's trading. No, 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 that's what you were thinking about. Congratulatory. I get it. But I mean, by the way, Anna Kendrick. Is a, she watches Fast Money, sure she and does. she's sure. mad at you because you didn't know what the movie was. So you might want to apologize. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. And I, it's great that you watch our show, though. Thank you. On that note, coming up, one manufacturing name could be beefing up as others are slimming down. The CEO will join us next to lay out how the weight loss drug boom is boosting his business. Plus, a massive AI bet, Amazon plugging as much as $4 billion into one tech startup. We'll chat about those details and more when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks, snapping a four-day losing streak to kick off the last week of September and Q3. The Dow at 43 points, the S&P and Nasdaq each climbing four-tenths of a percent. In Costco, getting in on this health care space, the bulk retailer now offering members access to medical care through Sesame, a direct-to-consumer health care marketplace. Costco members can receive virtual primary care visits for as low as $29. The move comes as companies like Amazon, CBS, and Walgreens also look to deepen their footprint in health care. Meantime, the weight loss drug boom isn't just a benefit to big pharma. It might be to the tipping the scale in favor of manufacturing company Jacobs Solutions. Its life sciences business has long-standing ties to Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. And Barclays sees significant growth for Jacobs as it holds a leading market share with the drug makers. Joining us here on set is Jacobs Solutions CEO Bob Pregada. Bob, great to have you with us. Thank you uh, for flying in and seeing us here on set. Melissa, thanks for having me. Um, when we say dominant market share, it's 60%. It is. Life uh, sciences. It is. We uh, we entered the life sciences uh, world almost 75 years ago. Our founder, Dr. Jacobs, actually right here in Brooklyn, uh, was a Merck employee and uh, left Merck to uh, start his own uh, engineering firm. Uh, and, it, uh, and Merck has been a longstanding client since then, and we've diversified uh, in the life sciences world, amongst other uh, infrastructure and uh, in other areas as well over the course of that period of time. So we mentioned your long-standing ties to Novo as well as Eli Lilly, the two manufacturers of GLP-1s, which are the active ingredient in these weight loss drugs. And so, you know, how, how are you thinking about what that adds to your pipeline, which had been at about $27 billion at the end of fiscal full year 2022? Correct. Correct. So if you think about our life sciences business, just in the last five years, uh, driven by two other verticals, oncology drugs as well as um, Alzheimer's and all the advancements that are happening there. Uh, we've doubled the size of our business uh, in the last five years, uh, along with chip manufacturing as well. So that, that business has been on a growth train uh, driven by technology advancements, and those technology advancements now have entered the world of, of diabetes with some, uh, some, some beneficial uh, other effects uh, with regards to weight loss. And so we're seeing that in real time. So you mentioned, for instance, cancer drugs as, as being a driver, but what percentage of the growth do you think can be attributable to uh, obesity and the diabetes drug, this category of drug? Moving forward, I think it's going to be likely a majority. majority uh, we'll, we'll, continue, we'll continue to see. Today, in, uh, we're, we're a $15 billion company uh, in sales, uh, 60,000 employees across 40 countries. Our, our advanced manufacturing uh, work is about $2.5 billion of that. Um, we, could, we could potentially double that in the next three to four years as a result of these megatrends that are happening within, within novel therapies. So how do you forecast out? I mean, you said it's, you think it's going to be the majority of growth going forward, but how do you think about the expansion opportunity that you have in front of you when you hear about the miracle possibilities that these drugs can lead to as being a treatment for addictions, for, to reduce cardiac events, to you know, eliminate sleep apnea as a treatment for Alzheimer's. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of the possible applications. How do you think about that growth translating into your business? Clearly, we get, we get excited. Uh, we, get, we get excited. I think we would be, uh, we wouldn't, wouldn't be proper for us to be in the business if we didn't get excited. Um, but the other, the other component is the complexity in the facilities really is the unique and dynamic part of our business. And so that science-based technical consulting that we have within the life sciences space uh, is driving innovation and delivery as well. Um, because I think I just uh, saw an interview that David Ricks gave a couple of weeks ago on, uh, on Squawk Box. 
capacity was probably mentioned several times uh, in that interview. And when you hear capacity and you hear speed, that's where Jacobs comes to play. How quickly can you help get a manufacturing facility uh, up and, and running? I, for instance, was in Denmark last week, saw the ground at Novo Nordisk being broken at their newest facility. I'm not saying that there's, but I'm just curious, how quickly could that be up and running? These normally take, uh, if, if, I were to, if I were to go back five years, then talk about COVID and what happened there and then now, five years ago, that would have been five years in order to, to, uh, to go from groundbreaking all the way through a validated facility. Uh, COVID taught us a lot, of, a lot of lessons and it's uh, go as fast as you can because the entire world is dependent on this facility producing vaccines. And so today we're probably in that two and a half to three year period. Wow. And then after that two year period and that plant is up and running, is your relationship with that particular plant over or is there recurring revenue or recurring business associated with that plant? There is recurring business that, uh, that goes on with that plant. You're constantly making upgrades, looking at innovations that are happening with uh, manufacturing technologies. So uh, there'll be ongoing work. Uh, on that on that facility big backlog almost 30 billion dollars I think up almost two and a half percent year over year big margins how important are government contracts I saw an EPA contract in early August I think government contracts are very important uh, and, and what we're seeing with these legislative actions that have happened and kind of transcending beyond uh, life sciences with the IJA uh, act as well as uh, chips act both here and in Europe and uh, and the IRA um, those contracts are driving our business. I'm sorry, those acts are driving our, uh, our business and, and will be for the foreseeable future. So nearshoring, basically. You, you, um, I mean, is, when a chip plant says we're going to move here or we're going to open a new chip plant here because of the CHIPS Act, that's where you benefit. You have 60 percent of the semiconductor market as well. We do. We do. So we do benefit. Uh, and I would say the nearshoring component or the reshoring component is, um, is a big piece. The other big piece around semiconductor is how... Uh, companies like a large uh, American uh, semiconductor manufacturer is redefining their own uh, business model. So going from integrated device manufacturing to both being both a foundry as well as an IDM is changing uh, you know, their business, which is adding capacity uh, both in the States as well as uh, in Europe. Europe also passed a CHIPS Act as well. This is, that's driving our business. Bob, we've seen over the last several years how tight labor has been and what that's done with wages. Is that easing? Are you seeing any improvement there? I'd say in the field that is, uh, that, that, that is a topic. And, and I think that more innovation and delivery, we, we, we address those productivity enhancement items in order to address uh, that, uh, that issue. Within Jacobs, we've got a unique opportunity because we're a global company. And so when we, when when a, when a large chip manufacturer comes to us or a life sciences or biotech uh, company comes to us and says, we need five of these as fast as you can go in five years, what we do is we use our global delivery model. And so if you look at what we have in India, what we have in Philippines, and these, this, isn't, this isn't offshore engineering, this is the highest talent in the world coming together in integrated teams and delivering locally for you know, these, these really market-driven needs. How recession-proof is the two big, two big areas of your business, the life sciences as well as the semiconductors? I don't know if anything is completely uh, immune to a recession, but uh, pretty resilient, I would say, because of the drivers. I mean, these drivers are human lives, you know, the ubiquitous world of, of everything that needs a chip, uh, and that's not stopping. Bob, thanks so much for coming in. We hope you'll come back to our show soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bob Brigada, Jacobs. 
We do these 13 Fs we talk about. You know, you should look at these. We should probably look at them a little closer. But third point in August announced they had increased their stake by almost 700 percent from a couple hundred thousand shares to 1.4 million shares. I won't bring the guests back, as you say, but there's always M&A around this name as well. The stock trades well, and it doesn't trade at a huge premium. The, the sum of the parts dynamic of how uh, I think the analyst community is valuing the stock based upon you know, the different pieces of the business and the spinoff opportunities are, is really what's fascinating and part of what's driving a lot of upgrades right now. How does the chart look, Chris? It's a good chart. Um, it's in a good group. Uh, it's in an uptrend when we're starved to find stocks in uptrends. Yeah, those two drivers, I mean, think about it. We spent a lot of time over the course of 2023 talking about them. And you think about that backlog that Guy talked about. You think of their market share in both of those industries. I think they kind of are recession-proof. You know, I mean, semiconductors like to spend them, themselves out of a recession. And then if you think about how the life sciences business, this is a mega trend that's going to go on for at least a decade. So to me, it's a pretty interesting setup. Coming up, Alexa might be getting some company on Amazon's AI shelf. The e-commerce giant setting up the arms race with $4 billion investment. The details straight ahead. And CNBC is celebrating Hispanic heritage. Here's the co-founder of Goldbelly. My parents raised me to believe that I can do anything. I came to the U.S., I went to college here, I pursued a lot of different opportunities before launching my company Goldbelly successfully. And I just know that this is an American dream for my parents. And it makes me really proud to have been able to deliver that. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon pressing its bets on AI, the e-commerce giant, investing up to $4 billion in AI startup Anthropic, hoping to use the company's technology and its products and even help develop custom chips for Amazon. Uh, Dan. Good news. I mean, you know, yeah. it's interesting. The stock sold off 10% in a straight line. And then you go and over the weekend, you put out a press release like this, one, one in the quarter. I, I mean, listen, this is a company where it was founded by ex-OpenAI folks. You know what I mean? Like, so like the, the, they got the real deal. They're working on the stuff. Um, there's going to be lots of competition in these sorts of spaces in a way. And when you think about AWS and you think about this platform that exists to kind of service um, a whole host of different sorts of companies, this makes sense. A one in a quarter billion is probably a rounding error. I do think it's interesting that, you know, ultimately Microsoft got up to about a 10 billion dollar number right. with OpenAI. It may end up being a great investment and it may end up powering a whole host of new services for AWS, which you know went through this massive deceleration of growth and they've had a lot of competition. So to me, it all makes sense. The agreement sort of reminded me of, of the Microsoft, Microsoft. OpenAI in terms of the, a small amount up front, the use of the mm-hmm. of the cloud services, right? So they get business and return yeah. in a way. Yeah, it makes sense. And you get a pop in the stock. However, and Chris can speak to this, last August, the stock traded up to 145 and failed and sold off dramatically. Look at where we just traded up to and seemingly failed again. We're trading 132 now. What was 145 to Dan's point a couple weeks ago? So I think you have a short-term double top here. I wouldn't look, touch it. I think the underwhelming response from the stock today is a sign of how the tone of this market has changed over the last two or three months. If this was in May or June, the stock oh, would have been up it. more than two bucks. Um, there's a gap around 136, 137 from the breakdown maybe four sessions ago. I think it can bounce to that, but I'm a seller up there. Much like the big names, I think this one has topped for the year. I, I actually think it's a no-brainer for Amazon. And if you think about the public cloud and what AI is doing, they have to be here. They have to make this investment. This is, this is chump change. Coming up, it's a bird, it's a plane. Nope, it's Chris Verone. Since mm. he's here for the hour, we've got to put him to work, send him off the chart, find out what he's watching next. Stick around, more Fast Money right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Semis may have cooled off lately, but the group is still up more than 40 percent this year. Chris, though, says there could be even more trouble brewing under the surface. You're going to go off the charts. Chris, what are you looking at? Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting, this has been a very vaunted group all year, but I think it's really underwhelming under the surface. We'll start with the biggest and most important name. Um, NVIDIA, uh, I think it's top for the year. There's a lot of resistance now in this 450 neighborhood, roughly where it broke down from uh, a couple weeks ago. The 200-day moving average is still 100 points away at 340, and there's a massive gap on the chart. I think as we've seen time and time again this year, there are no sacred stocks in this business. The the untouchables have all been touched. Uh, I don't think NVIDIA will be any different. And when you kind of go stock by stock in the group, what becomes clearer and clearer is how weak the semis are under the surface. Uh, TXN would be uh, an example. It broke down this week, uh, really making 52-week lows there. If you look at names like Infideon or ASML or Taiwan Semi, these are on the 52-week low list, not the 52-week high list. And it speaks to the broader point of the internal deterioration we've seen in semis. And I think one of the more powerful charts, if you look at the advanced decline line of the S&P semi index, so there's 50 stocks in this index, the advanced decline line's on the lows. So I recognize the index is still up 30 or 40% this year, but the fact that you have the AD line roughly making new lows here, I think speaks to just how weak this group is uh, under the surface. They're short-term oversold. I can see them bouncing here in the near term. Fade those rallies, I think they've topped the year. Would you shorten Nvidia again, Dan? Um, yeah, maybe. Like, let, let's see if we get to a little bit of a bounce. I mean, listen, the story for the rest of the year is going to be the deceleration of that growth, right? And so if there's any hiccups in the adoption of some of these products or whatever, or anything geopolitical or whatever, I mean, the, it, it's great. It's been a fantastic story. I was very, very wrong. I was like a moth to flame in this sort of thing. But um, again, I think the story, I, I think it's about as good as it gets right here. Well, the, the move that NVIDIA made on May 24th, 25th, whatever it was, and what it meant for the semiconductor, the socks, um, whatever you're following, uh, SMH, it, is, is the question, because we've been fighting. It, it hasn't gone past there. That was the relative high. In fact, it took out the high of deck 21, um, and it's been you know, making lower highs ever since. Uh, so I agree with the analysis, Chris. I agree that leadership was critical for the markets from that October, that CPI low of last year mm-hmm. is really when all this started to move. It hasn't fallen apart as people. It would have been so easy to say, boy, um, that, that, that NVIDIA move was so overdone. And, and actually, I think it's been I think it's been somewhat resilient, but I, I'm not going to fight that view. I agree. I think we've, we've had trouble making relative highs, uh, and therefore the Qs are having trouble making relative highs as well. And, and I think until they do, I think markets look toppy. Yeah. Well, I think the great paradox here is you talk about the 9% CPI print of last July. It was the 3% CPI print of this July where leadership really changed away from the Qs, away from discretionary, back to energy. Markets, markets not lo- responding to Markets CPI love like paradox, it and it's been exhibit A. Taiwan Semi's been rolling over now since June. AMD below 100 for the first time in a while. And that SMH chart, which we talked about at the top of the show, that is a massive double top without question. It seemingly will be intact for quite some time. So this ties perfectly back to the top of the show. Mm-hmm. We Tough just put times. a bow on it. We just, you just did. I mean, you look often at semiconductors as sort of being that it's, cyclical it's, indicator. It's, it's one of the, you know, you turn on your screens in the morning, there's a the handful of canaries you look at. I mean, that's, that has to be one of them. All right, up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. Yeah, well, if you think about defensive sectors, I do think Altria belongs in its own sector. And I think you've rewritten a lot of the bad news in that stock, ML. 
Chris Verone. There's some life in healthcare, Long, Amgen, AMG, and Perkin Up. Good to have you, Chris. Dan? I'm going to play your game. What, 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 which one? XLV. Oh, finally. Okay. It only took 58 minutes yeah. of the show. Sorry about that. Guy. Okay. Yeah, there might be life in healthcare. <laughs> But there's no life at Shea. I mean, that place has been empty, Tim, since August, as you know. But well, listen, I mean, things aren't going the city, too well in the Bronx either, It's my coming man. to an end, which is why. Get some football tonight, Mel. Let's sing some acapella. And you were talking about the Bengals. Boomer Sias yeah. and congratulations, Ring of Honor. You mentioned that earlier. He watches the show. He does. Ring, R-I-G. <laughs> Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Meantime. Do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.